You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. President Nixon didn't like the television show All in the Family when he first saw it. Once, when Nixon wanted to catch a college football game but found it was rained out, he turned the dial and found Norman Lear's comedy featuring Rob Reiner and Carolyn O'Connor. Unlike many Americans, Nixon was not amused. He was horrified that this show would be on network TV. Later, he told his chief of staff, Bob Hadelman, who scribbled notes on how his boss wasn't pleased with the treatment the show gave the main character, Archie Bunker. Star of the show, Nixon said, square type, named Arch, hippie son-in-law, made Arch look bad, everyone else look good. Nixon had a love-hate relationship with television. On one hand, he knew how important a medium it was. After all, reaching Congress first in 1946, Richard Nixon's political rise exactly mirrored the rise of sales of television sets into the living rooms of America. On the other hand, he also saw TV as the enemy. Nixon felt the three TV networks were helping his opponent in the 1972 election, McGovern, trying to make him look respectable because they shared McGovern's views. Nixon told his press secretary, Chuck Colson, that he wished to deny license renewals to television stations. We're going to screw them, he said, referring to the television networks. If Nixon's attitude towards TV was passive and aggressive, it was perhaps because in one moment TV saved him, and in another moment it almost ruined his political career. As a young congressman who was elevated, among many others, to be the vice presidential candidate of the Republican Party in 1952, Nixon suddenly faced a scandal about gifts he had received as a senator, and there was an incredible clamor to take him off the ticket, which Eisenhower started paying serious attention to. In his own defense, Nixon took to the television and made the famous Checkers speech of 1952, in which he used the TV appearance to defend himself and ridicule the charges of his opponents. Among the many gifts he had received was a small dog named Checkers, and Nixon said, we're keeping him. In that speech, he saved himself from being dumped as the vice presidential candidate just in time, a save that only the speed of television could provide. But after two terms as vice president, and then a run for the presidency, Nixon was one of the participants in the event that really would define television politics to this day. When he arrived in the television studio to debate his opponent, Senator John F. Kennedy, in 1960, Nixon was coming off a long day of campaigning with a crammed schedule. The vice president had made a commitment to a 50-state campaign and after a leg injury was playing catch-up. To cover up his 5 o'clock shadow, Nixon applied a product called Lazy Shave, a powder that worked in person face-to-face, but not so much on TV. His opponent, Kennedy, tanned from a few days' rest in California, and coming off a long debate rehearsal, followed by a nap, was in perfect shape for the debate. With this debate being about foreign policy, it was thought that the incumbent vice president, Richard Nixon, would clean up. But John Kennedy gave coherent answers and showed that he knew the subject matter well. 
in Arkansas, a young man named Bill Clinton watched the debate as it unfolded on TV. He easily thought Kennedy won. In Kansas, a budding politician named Bob Dole would listen on radio and say he thought Nixon did all right, though when he watched the TV program, he thought Nixon was sick. Perhaps they mirrored the opinion of America. It's often cited that television listeners thought Kennedy overwhelmingly won the debate, while radio listeners thought that Nixon won. But it was never really a scientific poll. The sample size was low, and the errors in methodology used in that particular poll of radio listeners would not pass muster in any polling area. It was allowing more time to collect responses on the radio side, but not on the other, on the television side. There's no true documented evidence that radio listeners thought Nixon did any better. Nor when one views the debate is it clear that Nixon's errors merely were what could be seen on television. Nixon was unprepared. His answers were canned. And many times he simply agreed with Kennedy on important foreign policy points and could not make a consistent argument against him. Nor could he counter Kennedy's argument that the Eisenhower administration was not moving fast enough against the Soviets. That Nixon's presentation was weak is as visible reading a written transcript as it is viewing the debate on TV. Kennedy certainly benefited from the medium and his intense preparation and acclamation to it. But what really did in Nixon is that he may have suffered from what pundits now term the expectation game in its first true televised instance. As vice president, Nixon was expected to be better on a debate, especially on foreign policy, and he wasn't. Kennedy was good. He understood the great questions of foreign policy and made a consistent argument. With those low expectations, the debate gave Kennedy a boost in the polls. But did it win him the election? Here's an interesting fact that often doesn't get discussed in the history of the 1960 election. Within a month, Kennedy's poll rating advantage from that debate was gone. Nixon had overtaken him. And Nixon also did considerably better in the second and third televised debates. Given that time frame, it's hard to see how Kennedy's win came solely from the debate. One could certainly argue that the debate put Kennedy into the game, into the race, put him on an even keel where people could see him possibly winning. One gain Kennedy had from the debate was clear. The day after the debate, seven Southern governors who had not committed to the Kennedy-Johnson ticket agreed to support him. So perhaps the biggest gain for Kennedy from this news media experience was earning support from the old-style politics and political machinery, which was still, in a sense, part of that close Kennedy victory. Kennedy won the election with a popular vote of only one-tenth of one percent, and even today there's still questions about that vote. The vote would be close, even though Kennedy was very charismatic and telegenic, despite disappointment with the Eisenhower second term and gains made by the Soviet Union. In 1984, Ronald Reagan was firmly established in politics as the great communicator. Nobody did TV better. For his re-election, he faced former Vice President Walter Mondale, a traditional liberal Democrat, fairly subdued politician, who won a crowded primary with the support of labor unions. In Louisville, where a debate was scheduled, it seemed pretty clear that Reagan would take his opponent down. But Mondale's campaign managers had no intention of letting him roll over. He was advised to take Reagan on, be aggressive and spontaneous, and surprise everyone by taking advantage of Reagan's age and, most importantly, his scriptedness. 
Mondale didn't follow every suggestion given by his consultant, Bob Schrum, but several times during the debate, Mondale leaned towards the president. And when Reagan tried one of his lines on Mondale, Reagan said, there you go again. And Mondale turned and said, there you go again, right? Remember the last time you said that? And Reagan was not ready with an answer. He didn't expect to get this question. You said it when President Carter said you were going to cut Medicare. You said, there you go again. And then you did. In other moments in the debate, Mondale was respectful to Reagan, but it was clear Mondale dominated that night. Reagan's handlers and supporters were shocked. He came off looking dizzy and stunned, incoherent. The incident truly could have only occurred on that hot, live medium of television. And it led to an issue that didn't exist before in the campaign, age. Questions spiraling in the media. Was Reagan one of the oldest presidents to serve, too old for the office? And Reagan for three days moved from an 18-point lead over Mondale to just a 12-point lead. Later in 1984, we'd get a debate coach, drop the briefing book, and crush Mondale in the next debate. Looking backward, Mondale's story seems to be just part of a pattern in presidential TV debates. The president Mondale had served under, Jimmy Carter, lost the presidency after agreeing to a last-minute debate on the Sunday a week before Election Day. And Carter did not do well against the affable old Reagan. Carter tried to paint him as a warmonger, but Reagan came out looking like a nice old man and Carter as a buffoon. But then, it was Carter himself, who in 1976 had bested an incumbent president, Gerald Ford, in TV debates including a famous one in which Ford referred to Poland as not under Soviet domination. A misinterpreted statement that didn't come off too well on TV. Carter leaped on it, accusing Ford of not being sensitive to Polish Americans. Presidential debates, indeed, are the most intense moments of TV and politics. But to any serious political watcher, it's hard to assign the results of the election to these events. Morning in America and the Reagan economy determined 1984. The Iran hostage crisis that Carter suffered determined 1980, as well as the economy and inflation. And the Nixon pardon was certainly more decisive a factor in 1976 than the theatrics of a debate. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Television. A word coined in the 1800s, long before the actual device existed. Back when it was simply an idea, television, a word that indeed reflects its old association with transmitting images, not through the air, but over the telephone, before wireless radio even existed. It was always an invention destined to be associated with politics. One of the first TV broadcasts conducted by AT&T in 1927 featured Herbert Hoover, then the star of the Coolidge administration, its Commerce Secretary. Hoover was broadcast over phone lines to reporters and bankers who were watching, and only experienced by the public and descriptions of it by newspaper. The man he would then face in the next election of 1928, Governor Al Smith of New York, was, as a novelty, 
also filmed on television, accepting the Democratic nomination. But the new medium was a sideshow for the real audience of radio. Smith, a trained performer, was nice enough to rehearse his acceptance speech so that the cameras could get the right angle. And he also had to bear a thousand watt bulb being pressed three feet from his face. But General Electric, who was conducting the television briefing, didn't count on the fact that when newsreel camera lights were lit in the real press conference, the resulting image was a whiteout and Smith could not be seen. These were nothing more than novelties and experiments. Due to patent battles and technical problems, a president would not be put on camera until 1939 at the World's Fair when Franklin Roosevelt would appear. But even this was still a novelty. It wasn't until the entire 1940 Republican convention was televised from Philadelphia and relayed back to those who had sets. In these days, many of these sets were home-built kits uh, in the New York area through a television antenna on the Empire State Building. It wasn't until that moment, that broadcast, that people felt the medium had arrived. Bill Benton is not a name people know today, but he was a historic pioneer in politics and television. Benton, an advertising executive who was running for senator from Connecticut in 1950, was one of the first to use commercials on a new medium to get himself elected. And still, Democratic Party leaders in the state of Connecticut told him to forget it and get out and shake hands. But Benton won, and Benton proved that television does deliver numbers, multiplies impact. Of that, there's no denying. Two years later, Eisenhower's campaign managers would learn a lesson from Benton's campaign and would dominate the TV airwaves with campaigns that were much slicker than Eisenhower's Democratic opponent, Adelaide Stevenson. While Eisenhower and his wife took questions, prearranged questions, from members of a television audience, Adelaide's commercials featured him speaking, looking into the camera. No doubt, Eisenhower used TV successfully in 1952 to crush Stevenson. But one could argue that Adelaide Stevenson was doubtless going to be crushed by this hero of World War II anyway. So what did Benton's innovation of television politics mean? For many pundits, television has totally changed politics. While old politics supposedly consisted of diplomatic and structured debates, high discussion of issues, and face-to-face speeches, television steered us towards younger, handsomer, telegenic candidates, made image more important, ended serious debate, increased punditry, overall cheapened our politics. But in reality, it may have done none of those things. It's been said that Abraham Lincoln would not be elected if television was around in 1860s. Few things make me angrier. It's an assertion that I'm sure is not true. Just sure of it. Certainly, Lincoln was not a stunning-looking man. But that he was an ugly man is borrowing more from leftover descriptions of his opponents. He was a powerful speaker and a charismatic person that has impact on audiences. Descriptions of his Cooper Union speech, where many in the crowd did not know who he was and many came out supporting his presidential ambitions, reveal Lincoln's impact on the audience. Furthermore, it's not true that voters didn't know what Lincoln looked like when they cast their ballots. Given that the 1850s saw great development in photography, photographs of Lincoln, as well as the other candidates in 1860, were distributed all over the nation and printed in newspapers. Lincoln himself remarked that he preferred to see these photographs out there rather than the the etchings of cartoonists who would present him as a monster. 
After receiving a letter from a young girl about his photograph, who suggested that he get a beard, Lincoln did so. And that is the bearded image that we know of President Lincoln. It's really only an image that he adopted for the last six years of his life. And there's no doubt in my mind that given his incredible knack for image, George Washington would have been great on television. After the Revolutionary War, when a group of disgruntled Revolutionary Army officers met in Newburgh, Pennsylvania, the so-called Newburgh Conspiracy, to address their grievances, but also to take over the new nation, Washington entered their meeting to speak to them. He couldn't be denied. Intent on revolution, they had to pause and listen to the great general and the hero of the war. And Washington had a great speech prepared, but before he started speaking, he put on a pair of spectacles. The crowd was shocked. No one had seen Washington wear them before. Excuse me, he told the crowd, as I have grown gray-haired and nearly blind in your service. Some of the older officers in the crowd wept seeing this hero of the revolution in this condition. The coup was over before Washington even began to speak. This is just one of many examples of Washington's incredible power of image and his pre-television telegenic personality. While looks are a factor in today's politics, anyone who says it's only now that it is does not consider the 19th century. They do little justice to Franklin Pierce, Chester Arthur, and the sideburns he cultivated, Theodore Roosevelt, or William Jennings Bryan, and their incredible magnetism that would move crowds. In Bryan's case, one speech got a convention planning to nominate someone else to nominate him instead. I think most 19th century presidents would have had a shot on television, with, with a few exceptions. I mean, James Madison's meek manner might have come out on TV and not so much in his favor. Rutherford B. Hayes or Benjamin Harrison might have seemed a bit dull. But still, people probably would have pulled the lever for him for the same reasons they voted for that handsome devil Lyndon Johnson with his big ears or George Bush Sr. based on the same reasons they vote now. The economy's good or the economy's not good. We're at peace. We're at war. We agree with issues. We disagree with issues. Or the other guy's worse. And it's hard to say that all the presidents elected since Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush... Clinton maybe as an exception, it's hard to say that they were all that telegenic. While it's often thought that the youthful Kennedy had an advantage over his older opponent because of the new medium of television, which favors youth and beauty, one must remember that Nixon was only four years older than Kennedy. In the election of 1960, television debate or no television debate, Americans in 1960 were going to get a president under 50. Television has not had much of an impact on the average age of presidents. The oldest president, Reagan, was elected after its invention and widespread use. And he's also consistently rated, along with Kennedy, as one of the best television presidents. Image was always important. Candidates prior to Lincoln were distributed on handbills. One thinks of Andrew Jackson being distributed in his general uniform. Image was alive before an enlightened box appeared in our living rooms. We might think now that television has somehow cheapened our politics, made it seem more crass and commercial. After all, candidates are products now, right? Well, all one has to do is look back at William Henry Harrison's Log Cider campaign of 1840 to realize that candidates have been products for quite a long time. Harrison's campaign, the attempt of the Whigs to take back the White House from Andrew Jackson and his successor, Martin Van Buren, and to essentially do to him what had been done to them, was a marketing blizzard. Not only were hard cider bottles with the image of the candidates distributed 
emphasizing Harrison's humble log cabin roots. Of course, conveniently forgetting that Harrison grew up in a mansion. But toys, games, special sheet music were all part of the campaign and distributed widely, and in many campaigns to follow. A hundred years before the use of television and politics, these merchandising images could even go negative. One paper cutout that was widely distributed featured then-incumbent President Martin Van Buren, who Harrison and the Whigs were attempting to defeat, and emphasized his aristocratic roots by showing him drinking champagne. When you pulled a string on the cutout, it showed him with a repugnant face when he was presented with the pure American hard cider that William Henry Harrison preferred. That's 1840, and it's hard to say that politics then had not been cheapened somewhat. And there was drama, ritual, pageantry, and excitement to 19th century politics. Throughout the streets of American cities, armies of supporters would roll giant medicine balls, large wood ball, which would contain rolling messages that would be visible to those peering out from the streets. In 1840, the medicine ball said, To steer the ship, we need old tip, a reference to... Harrison and the Battle of Tippecanoe. And in a reference to Van Buren, it would say, Van is not the man. So without TV sets, messages were going far and wide. Images of candidates were made available to the masses. And while there wasn't the cathode rays available to light our living rooms, light was part of the spectacle. In 1856 and 1860, residents of northern cities might have looked out their window to see the bright light of huge Buchanan and Lincoln torch parades with hundreds of people with torches marching for their candidates. It has to be said that television instantly increased the range of the message that a a presidential campaign could deliver. But it can also be overstated. Presidential campaigns, especially after 1840, were always large operations involving networks of people in all states. Keep in mind, that Americans prior to the advent of the automobile were either in cities where they could easily be centered and reached or in farm communities where they could be reached at some type of communal event. There were no suburbs to speak of. This supplemented by heavy newspaper use in a country that has always enjoyed a high literacy rate. The need for the private living room speech of TV may not have been necessary in the 19th century. And although stumping was seen as beneath presidential campaigns, there would be folks stumping. And when they did campaign, candidates traveled thousands of miles in train or whistle-stop tours, which could really stir up attention. William Jennings Bryan and Theodore Roosevelt were fierce campaigners. Bryan in 1896 and Roosevelt as the vice presidential candidate in 1900 reached hundreds of thousands of people riding on the back of railroad trains. Bryan in 1896 delivered 600 flamboyant speeches in 29 states. I mean, if you were in one of those states and you had any political interest, you had a great chance of seeing that candidate. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Even candidates who went nowhere reached a lot of people. When McKinley ran in 1896, he stayed at his home and allowed people to come to him. The Republican Party raised enough money to provide discounted rail to his home, and over 750,000 people came to physically see McKinley which represented nearly 2% of the country. These are not the numbers that television can provide, but it's still true that large numbers of people were seeing candidates, even in the 19th and early 20th century. Television has not influenced the, the, the media circus, the punditry, the expression of opinion to the masses. Thomas Jefferson did not appear in Crossfire, but his administration was well covered by numerous newspapers around the country, several of which were known party organs and one that he actually set up himself to provide good coverage. And Ronald Reagan is often thought of as one of the great television presidents, and certainly he was a great speaker, intelligent, and could craft a message that went over well on TV. But his administration's success was not just the result of TV. Reagan spent the 11 weeks he would have between his election in 1980 and when he took office in 1981 attending lavish social parties in Washington, making sure he had the support behind the scenes of the important power brokers of Washington. He knew that these insiders who had killed Jimmy Carter during his presidency would determine his future. He did not simply sit aloof and appear on television to get his message out. He did not try to go around these people. He used television as a weapon, but he also pursued the back door of Washington, D.C. politics. With all this, it looks like television hasn't changed things all that much. I don't believe we've lost fundamental politics. I don't think people vote differently than they voted in 1860. They vote by assessing the candidate's performance, their situation, foreign policy of the country, issues that are important to them, the performance of the candidate's party. But yet TV has changed some things. Just things that are more subtle. TV has increased the speed of politics, no doubt. Allowing Kennedy to boost himself quickly, or Mondale to suddenly throw off the popular Reagan, or Reagan to quickly recover. Willie Horton ads savaging Michael Dukakis and cutting his lead. Reagan beating Carter in a debate right before people went to the polls. And Carter being able to capitalize on Ford's mistake to assist his win in the 1976 election. But is the speed significant? I'm not always sure that it is. Even in the newspaper era, let's take the 1904 campaign. You had Alton Parker throwing mud at Teddy Roosevelt in the Sunday paper, and the next week, Teddy Roosevelt answers him. Now, today, such a debate might have happened in minutes, so it happened in a week's time. Television has made politics less public and more personal, in a sense. Candidates can enter your living room, and you can, in many cases, enter their personal life. No longer can a reporter with a notepad say, forget about that, don't write about that, the camera sees it all. Everything is fair game, it seems. It's also had other political effects, such as, I do believe it's contributed greatly to making the president, the executive, far more powerful than the office had been in the 19th century. Television favors a single voice. It's a medium that has room for one, just one talking head. The president has better access 
to reach the entire country with his own message than others. A television president can bully Congress much easier than in the pre-television days. Television has reduced the power of the political machines, but not completely. Witness that Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago was still determining elections well into the 60s, and even in 1976 it was necessary for Jimmy Carter, in addition to appearing on television, to woo Mayor Daley to get the crucial support of the Chicago machine. To the extent we look at technologies, radio must be considered along with television. Starting in the 1920s, radio was significant. And another invention, the largely forgotten newsreel, since William McKinley was filmed marching in a parade and taking the oath of office. Through the time when Woodrow Wilson created a bureau to develop pro-war films, to Franklin Roosevelt's mastery of the newsreel medium, theaters would be packed just to see his fireside speeches. Newsreels appearing at the beginning of movies was a significant way for presidents to get their message and image across. The most commonly accepted indicator of public involvement in politics is turnout. Now, if television has made political communication more effective, it should increase turnout, right? In fact, there's only been a slight rise in the turnout figures. I wouldn't say that television hasn't changed anything in politics. I just think the changes have not reached the fundamentals. Candidates can't give two-and-a-half-hour speeches, and having the machine's backing isn't everything anymore. Many of the most significant changes we attribute to TV, though, such as a focus on image, the speeding up of politics, and the shortening the perceived distance between the voter and politician, increasing the president's power, were well on their way with the invention of radio and the newsreel. Maybe part of the reason we think there's radical change is that we don't know what things were like back then, the partisan nature of American politics in the 19th century and the 18th century. The flood of newspapers of various opinions, nasty articles under fake names that were distributed attacking candidates in the election of 1800. We don't know that the average 19th century voter probably did go to the polls with some idea of what their candidate looked like, even if it was from a ridiculing cartoon. Still, Americans, just like media folks and political insiders, get caught up in the drama that TV creates. But in the end, it's the fundamentals that get people elected. Kennedy beat Nixon not because of a handsome face, but because people felt Eisenhower was lethargic about fighting the Soviets. Reagan was a great TV president, but he also got things done in Washington and benefited from a good economy in his re-election year. Even the last election, held in 2004, was more of a grassroots ground battle than a TV election, with groups like ACT and MoveOn.org on one side and Karl Rove's army of ground organization of true believers on the other, competing for the electoral votes of a single state, Ohio, after barrages of ads on both sides that really made TV neutralize. It may well be that television hasn't changed politics any more than it's changed baseball. More people are exposed to the politics on a regular basis we see the faces of various players closer, and a few things in the game have indeed shifted to accommodate the television audience. But the game still comes down to fundamentals. Govern well, manage the economy and foreign policy, run a strong and well-funded campaign. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening, and the website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Post your comments there. Buy the Chester Arthur t-shirt. I also wanted to let you know that My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We're going to soon be uh, teaming up with the podcast network. Now, this is the network that does the Napoleon podcast. 
among other excellent programs. So um, more news on that to come. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.